0: Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question-and-answer session and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. And as a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderators for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Well, thank you very much, Mary, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect program, the 8th Annual Cancer Survivorship Series, Living With, Through, and Beyond Cancer. This program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care, the National Cancer Institute, Live Strong, Intercultural Cancer Council, Living Beyond Breast Cancer, and the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. Now, the topic for our program today is Trouble Sleeping. Sleep Better to Feel Better Tips You Can Use. And this has been a topic that many of you have asked about, have been having concerns about, want to know more about it, and we have chosen this topic today. And clearly, this is a topic that is of great interest to all of you on the call because we have on the call today over 2,709 participants on the call and this is amazing. It's just an amazing response to this program. A credit to each of you. We also, we have participants from all over the United States You come from large cities and small cities, from suburban areas, as well as rural and frontier communities. We also have a host of people from international uh, countries, um, from Australia, Argentina, Vahram, Bangladesh, India, Canada, Colombia, Dominican Republic, Honduras, India, Indonesia, Ireland, Israel, Italy, Pakistan, Venezuela, and the United Kingdom. So you clearly come from all over the world, and it is a great credit that you have chosen to send the next hour with us. Now, today's program is made possible by support from the National Cancer Institute and Live Strong, and we really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now, I would like to introduce to all of you, co-moderator for today's program, Dr. Catherine Alfano. She is Program Director and Behavioral Scientist, Office of Cancer Survivorship, Division of Cancer Control and Population Sciences at the National Cancer Institute, National Institutes of Health. I want to turn the program over to Dr. Alfano, who also would like to say some words of welcome to all of you.
2: Thank you, Carolyn, and welcome to our invited speakers and to all of the listeners who have joined us for today's workshop. It is truly an honor to be able to co-host the 8th Annual Cancer Survivorship Teleconference Series, focusing on the issues faced by survivors and their loved ones after treatment ends. As Carolyn noted, this is the first of the four workshops in our 2010 series, and the National Cancer Institute, represented by my office, the Office of Cancer Survivorship, and by the Office of Communications and Education, is pleased to serve once again as an organizational partner and co-funder of this program. As some of you may know, the National Cancer Institute established the Office of Cancer Survivorship in 1996 in direct response to the articulate and compelling demand by cancer survivors and the advocacy community to better understand the unique and ongoing needs of this growing population. The overall goal of the office is to improve the length and quality of survival for all of those living with a history of cancer, which is currently estimated to be over 12 million people in the United States alone. One of the ways the office achieves its mission is by participating in the development of educational materials and outreach activities, such as this teleconference series, that are designed to equip cancer survivors and their caregivers with the information that they need to achieve optimal health and well-being after cancer. The number of participants in this survivorship series has continued to grow across the years. In the past, we've had participants from over two dozen countries on our calls, making our capacity to reach those in search of information truly global. Along with our program partners, we're deeply gratified by this response, but at the same time, we recognize that the popularity of this series is a testament to the fact that for many cancer survivors and caregivers, even though the cancer treatment is over, the cancer experience is not. The topics we have chosen for this year's teleconference series reflect themes that many survivors, caregivers, and healthcare providers have told us prevent, present challenges for them as survivors make the transition from treatment to recovery. We know that today's topic, sleep disturbance, is common among cancer survivors. Most research has focused on women with breast cancer, and we know that upwards of 70% of these women may report trouble sleeping. These sleep problems may include trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, early morning awakening, excessive daytime sleepiness, or a combination of these problems. Research has shown us that many factors may influence these sleep problems, including long-term effects of chemotherapy and radiation treatment, pain, and psychosocial factors such as stress, depression, and anxiety. In turn, having trouble sleeping may make pain, stress, depression, and anxiety worse and contribute to poor quality of life. Cancer survivors may be hesitant to talk with their health care providers about sleep problems, so they may not know that these problems are treatable. I am very pleased to have three outstanding speakers who will address this topic today. Again, I'm delighted to be co-hosting this workshop with my colleague, Dr. Carolyn Messner, and I will now turn the program over to her.
1: Well, thank you very much, Dr. Alfano, for just a wonderful words of welcome to everybody and also for really explaining in in more detail the purpose of the program and our intent in offering these programs. We hope that they will be so helpful to everybody on the call today. Now, I would like to introduce our speakers. We have wonderful speakers, as Dr. Alfano has said. They really are just, we just think. And we'll see what you think. Um, And our first speaker is Dr. Elizabeth McKinley. Dr. McKinley is is going to present the survivor perspective, and she is an assistant professor of medicine, Dean, Emily Blackwell Society, Case School of Medicine, Case Western Reserve University. And I now turn the program over to Dr. McKinley, who will present the survivor's perspective. Dr. McKinley.
3: Thank you, Dr. Messner. You know, I'm really delighted to be part of this program. You know, I'd never had any sleeping problems at all until my diagnosis of cancer in, let's see, December of 1996. And my sleep problems began a diagnosis for me when I just felt so scared all the time. And then in the middle of chemotherapy, I began having terrible hot flashes as chemo shut down my ovaries. And this just contributed to me not being able to sleep. And I continued to have sleep disturbances for a long time after treatment ended, too as I was feeling really exhausted and sad all day long and yet not being able to sleep at night. And I was just miserable, and I I finally got to the point where I was so miserable that I sought some help, finally. And what I found was that I was depressed, which the doctor told me was also affecting my sleep. And I was also quite anxious as a new survivor about fears of recurrence as well, and that just made things worse. So um, I was given a medication for my depression, and that did help me sleep. But I, I continued to take the medication as a sleep aid for many, many years. I'm a little embarrassed to say I think I took it for about seven years, which was long after my very short-lived depression had lifted. And my oncologist finally talked to me and said, you know, I think you should try to go off this drug. But after a long, Um, weaning period I did go off the drug and of course I couldn't sleep Um, and it was just uh, very frustrating for me and I really wasn't sure at all what to do so I began to do a little reading on my own and I began to understand something about sleep habits and I realized that I really had no routine at all for my own sleep what I mean is I I went to bed at all different times as did my husband I was having tea at bedtime that was often caffeinated and really not thinking about that, and I would just lie in bed when I couldn't sleep and toss and turn. So I tried to create some sleep habits, such as going to bed at roughly the same time every night and cutting out drinking anything caffeinated at night and getting out of bed when I awoke in the middle of the night and reading until I felt sleepy and then getting back in bed. And you know what? It helped a lot. And I also decided to add, I've been hearing a lot about yoga, and I decided to add yoga and exercise to my routine and some breathing exercises that really helped me relax, and I did some of that at night, and that, that has helped a lot too. And, you know, I also recognize that my husband's snoring and my dog walking around and my kids moving at night, and everything just woke me up. I'm such a light sleeper to begin with. So a friend of mine also suggested I try some earplugs. And you know what, they've really helped me, too. So all of these changes, finally, have helped quite a lot, but I still wasn't sleeping perfectly. And, you know, at this point now, it's been about, well, about 12 years after my diagnosis. So I decided I'd waited long enough, and I would ask for help again. And I saw my internist this year, who asked me very astutely, I think, how much caffeine and alcohol I was really drinking. And, you know, I hadn't ever really added up how much caffeine I drank all day. And when I actually had to write it down, I was drinking much more than I realized. And so we decided together that I would wean myself off caffeine and alcohol. And, you know, this was a really hard task for me, but um, I made it. And I believe it's really been one of the most significant behavior changes that I've made. And in addition to all the other things I've talked about, it's really helped me finally sleep. So I think for me, asking for help, which I think I probably didn't do enough, and really trying to think through and untangle all the factors that might possibly be contributing to my lack of sleep has been really crucial for me Um, because I think there's so many things that can interfere with our sleep. For me, you know, being scared and sad about a diagnosis or a recurrence or the future, um, cancer treatments themselves, side effects of treatment for me like pain with neuropathy and hot flashes and other medication side effects and other medical conditions that we might have and this idea of lack of sleep habits. Um, And I'm sure that there are other factors. But I'll tell you, finally getting some real sleep has been an amazing improvement in my life. And I now can kind of look back and, and realize how much not sleeping interfered with my life and my quality of life. And in fact, I think most importantly, my ability to feel hopeful about the future. So I guess that's, that's what I have to say. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you very much, Dr. McKinley, for just really sharing with us your experience and really informing the whole program today because I think your experiences resonate with many of the participants on the call today, with our speakers. So we we can't thank you enough for really setting the stage for this program today. Thank you. And uh, I know there will be questions. During the Q&A, but um, we're going to take our next speaker, but thank you so much. Our next speaker is Dr. Sonia Ancoli-Israel. She's Director, Gillen Sleep and Chronomedicine Research Center, Department of Psychiatry, Professor of Psychiatry, University of California, San Diego. And um, she is going to address sleep disturbances and cancer survivors, why sleep is important, and good sleep hygiene, and practical tips to improve the sleep.
4: Uh, Dr. Um, uh, Ancoli-Israel. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. It's really my honor to be here, to be able to speak with everyone. Um, As you just heard, I'm going to talk about why we need to sleep and if we can't sleep, what we might be able to do to fix that. I want to start first by discussing how much sleep do we need. Most adults need between seven and eight hours of sleep. It's true that some people are shorter sleepers and some are longer but there are very few people that can get by with less than about seven to eight hours of sleep. There are two reasons we don't get that amount of sleep. One is because we just don't spend enough time in bed. If you're only in bed six hours, you obviously can't get seven to eight hours of sleep, and we call that sleep deprivation. But then there's those people who also spend enough time in bed but just can't get the sleep that they need, and that's what we call a sleep disorder. And one of the more common ones is insomnia, which is defined as having difficulty falling asleep, having difficulty staying asleep, or just not feeling like your sleep is restored or that the quality of sleep is poor. There are other sleep disorders. They will also result in poor sleep like restless legs or circadian rhythm disorders, which is like jet lag where our biological clock is out of sync with our environment. But whatever the reason that you can't sleep, the problem is that it is associated with daytime impairment. It does affect our ability to function during the day. Not getting enough sleep will result in problems with memory, concentration, a slower reaction time. And when I think of reaction time, I think of how long does it take to slam on the brakes if some child is running in front of your car chasing a ball. That would be slower if you don't have enough sleep. It creates difficulty in handling stress making decisions which can lead to decreased performance on your job, increased uh, absenteeism, overall poor quality of life, increased pain and, in general, poor health. Not getting enough sleep puts us at greater risk for having colds, gaining weight, diabetes, and overall just poor health. It also puts us at risk for psychiatric problems, for problems with depression and anxiety. You just heard from Dr. McKinley that her depression was making it hard for her to sleep. But having a hard time sleeping can also lead to depression, and it also puts us at increased risk for uh, accidents because our attention span isn't quite as good. So even driving, we might have um, more risk for, uh, for accidents. So there are lots of consequences to not being able to sleep. And so we have to think about what can we do then to make sure we get the sleep that we need. Before I start talking about how we can help sleep behaviorally, I want to give you a model that we use. We call it the three P's of insomnia. And the three P's are the predisposing factors, the precipitating factors, and the perpetuating factors. So this will explain to you why you might have a difficulty with sleep where others around you who have been through similar things might not. So the predisposing factors are First of all, being a woman, that puts us at greater risk for developing insomnia. The older we get, the more likely we are to develop problems with sleep. If we have a family history of insomnia, if we already have some uh, psychological problem like depression or anxiety, or just having a medical condition like cancer, all these things could predispose us to difficulty sleeping, but it doesn't mean we will have a hard time sleeping. Uh we begin having difficulties if we have a precipitating factor. That's our second P. So some stressful like event life event like being told you have cancer or um, having other medications that have that create difficulty with sleep, uh difficulties with our environment, too much light, too much noise, like a husband snoring or a wife snoring, uh us women snore as well. But even that will only cause Acute insomnia, short-term insomnia. The insomnia becomes chronic when we have perpetuating factors, and those are often the bad habits we develop. And so when we treat insomnia behaviorally, it's those perpetuating factors that we try to deal with. And those would include things that, that Dr. McKinley just mentioned that she was doing, having an irregular sleep schedule, napping too much during the day, too much caffeine, alcohol, or nicotine, uh, doing things that are stimulating near bedtime, or doing things that cause stress near bedtime. And so what we want to do is change these habits. So the first would be not spending too much time in bed and keeping a regular schedule. Not only going to bed at the same time, but getting up at the same time every day. No sleeping in on Sunday mornings. You know, you can't really control what time you fall asleep. The only point you can control is what time you wake up in the morning. So getting up at the same time is very important. Not spending too much time in bed. The longer we spend in bed, the more disturbed our sleep becomes. The less time we spend in bed, the more consolidated sleep is. So eight hours of sleep out of eight and a half hours in bed is much more efficient than eight hours of sleep out of nine or ten hours in bed. What does the insomnia patient often say? You know, I had so much trouble sleeping last night, I'm going to go to bed two hours earlier tonight. What they're doing is actually making their sleep worse. By spending too much time in bed. Napping during the day could also cause difficulties with sleep at night. The longer you nap during the day, the less tired you'll be when it's time to go to bed at night, and that'll make it harder to sleep. So we advise that if someone is going to nap, to limit the nap to 30 minutes, never more than that, and to do it early in the afternoon so it doesn't interfere with nighttime sleep. Regular exercise is also very important. The more physically fit we are, the better we sleep. But that doesn't mean you have to go run or be part of a triathlon. It just means doing whatever exercise you're able to do, but to do it on a very regular schedule. And if you can exercise outdoors, that's even better because we need lots of bright light exposure. The more light we're exposed to during the day, the better we'll sleep at night. Along the same lines, we need very little light at night, so you want your bedroom to be very dark. Our sleep is controlled in part by a hormone called melatonin, which is produced in a certain part of our brain, and melatonin is secreted in darkness. So if there's light in your bedroom, that's like telling your brain, ah, time to get up, no more sleep for you. So the darker your bedroom is, the better it is. Often blackout curtains will help with that. We already heard about the importance of not having too much caffeine or alcohol. Alcohol will make you sleepy initially, but several hours later when the alcohol leaves your bloodstream, it actually wakes you back up again. So not only is drinking at bedtime a problem, but if you drink too much with dinner, you might be sleepy right after dinner, but by the time it's time to go to bed, you might be wide awake. Um, And in addition to keeping your bedroom very dark, you also want it to be quiet and a comfortable temperature, not too hot and not too cold. There are two other behavioral things that are very important. One is dealing with our anxious thoughts. You know, in our busy lives, often the first time we have to sit and think is when we get into bed at night, and that's the wrong time to start thinking and worrying. So we tell people to find 15 minutes during the day, when you can turn off your cell phones and put out a do-not-disturb side and just sit and worry. That's your worry time. That's the time to think about all the things that are going on in your life. And by doing that at the same time every day, it frees you from having to do it when you're in bed at night trying to sleep. The last sleep hygiene tip um, that I want to talk about is looking at the clock. Often the very first thing we do when we wake up in the middle of the night is we check to see what time it is. What do you you have to do when you look at the clock? You have to open your eyes, turn your head. But what's worse is you have to take yourself from transitional sleep to full awakening to comprehend that it's 1.20 in the morning and you want to be asleep. So the best thing you can do is get rid of that clock. If you need the alarm, put the clock in a drawer or under the bed where you'll still hear the alarm but where you won't be tempted to look at it. 90% of insomniacs will sleep better just by getting rid of that clock. There are also two additional behavioral therapies that we use that are very, very effective in helping people sleep better. One is called stimulus control and the other is called sleep restriction. Stimulus control basically means that we use the bed only for sleeping we don't watch TV in bed. We don't read mystery novels in bed. We don't pay our bills in bed. We don't keep our blackberries or other cell phones and email near the bed. The bedroom is only for sleeping. And sex is okay in the bedroom if it's satisfying. If it's frustrating, we don't do that in the bedroom either. And the idea is that you start associating your bed and the bedroom with sleeping rather than with all these other things. So the way this works is when you get into bed, if you haven't fallen asleep in about 20 minutes, and I say about because there's no clock for you to be watching. So when you start feeling tense, when you feel like, gosh, I've been in bed too long and I'm not asleep yet, you get out of bed, you leave the bedroom, and you do something calming and relaxing until you feel your eyes closing, Then you get back into bed. If, once you've gotten back into bed, after about 20 minutes, you still haven't fallen asleep, you get out of bed again, and you leave the bedroom until you feel tired enough to fall asleep. And you keep doing that until you can actually get into bed and fall asleep. Along with that, you still have to get up at the same time every day. So if 6 o'clock is your usual wake-up time, even if you haven't fallen asleep till 5, you still have to get out of bed at 6. No napping that day. The next night you're going to be very sleepy because we've sleep deprived you. You'll have an easier time sleeping. If not, you repeat the whole process again. And you do that every night until you can get into bed and fall asleep. It is a very, very effective technique for reteaching our brain to sleep when you're in the bed. The other therapy, the sleep restriction, is, uh, just as it sounds, we actually restrict the amount of time you're allowed to be in bed. So if you estimate that you sleep about five hours a night, you're only allowed to be in bed for five hours. So if you wake up, if your wake-up time is 6, you can go to bed at 1 in the morning and not before. When you can be in bed for those five hours and sleep about 90% of the time, you get to increase your time in bed by 15 minutes. You now get to go to bed 15 minutes earlier. And when you can be asleep for 90% of that time, you get to increase it again. So you slowly increase the time in bed. This is particularly good for the people that are spending too much time in bed, which, as I said, makes the insomnia worse. That takes care of the behavior, but what about all those thoughts that go through your head? What we're talking about here is a therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy. We've dealt with the behavioral parts, but now there's the cognitive parts—the common worries and catastrophic thoughts that we might have, like if I don't sleep well tonight, I'm not going to do well at work tomorrow and I'm going to get fired, or I'll be irritable with my husband and he's going to divorce me, or my cancer is going to come back. All these things are thoughts that go through our minds, but if we think at them rationally, we know they're probably not true and not really going to happen. So with the cognitive part of this therapy, we start to deal with these maladaptive thoughts and realize that they're keeping us awake, we're stressing over them, but they're not really going to happen. Um, There have been many studies to show that this cognitive behavioral therapy that I've just described is really the very best treatment we have for insomnia, better than any drugs, better than any other treatment. So it's important to try to integrate these behavioral and cognitive ideas into your life. So to summarize, the bottom line is sleep is essential to feeling good, and in order to get good sleep, We have to make sleep a priority by making our nighttime activities and our environment conducive to sleep. And if you follow the rules that we've talked about, you're much more likely to have a good night's sleep. And with that, I'll stop. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you very much. Uh, This is really fantastic. And we do want everyone to have a good night's sleep. And I want to thank Dr. Ancoli Israel for really contributing to some really important ideas and thoughts and and things that you can put into place to really um, help you to have a good night's sleep, which is so important. So thank you. I know you'll, you'll have questions during the Q&A for you. Our next speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is Director of Supportive Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, Beth Israel Medical Center, St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital. Now, Dr. Fleischman is going to talk about sleep disturbances and cancer survivors. He's going to talk about the role of sleeping pills and antidepressants and creating a comfortable sleep environment. Dr.
5: Fleischman. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. I'm impressed by the amount of practical suggestions people have made. It all is good common sense for everybody. Um, if you've had cancer, if you're caring for someone with cancer, treating someone with cancer, or just pretty much everybody else, these are, are good common sense things that probably we don't practice enough. My job is to focus this a little bit on um, some of the um, commonalities between sleep problems and the world of cancer diagnosis and treatment and then talk a little bit about the medications since most people do not have a sleep expert in their cancer center close by unfortunately and rely on us to do some of the quick fixes and un- unfortunately sometimes that over on medications. So um, We don't know exactly why there are sleep problems in um, someone who is getting treated for cancer but we do believe that the theories that are out there may be quite valid and Part of that is that having cancer, even if it's in a limited part of the body and the treatment is in a limited part of the body, like radiation or affects the whole body, like chemotherapy, affects a number of different um, everyday issues, including um, how much weight you keep on, um, how much fatigue you have, uh, mood changes, even some pain problems um, are certainly connected to um, the chemicals that cancer gives off as it grows or even afterwards. And for lack of better terms, those are called cytokines or cell proteins. They affect the rest of the body, even though the cancer may be limited to one part of the body. And these cytokines, we believe, are related to all the conditions I mentioned. And if you're fatigued and you're getting enough medicines that interfere with your sleep cycle as a result of your chemotherapy or radiation treatments or even the treatments themselves, then that can affect your sleep at night. Um, There is a theory that, uh, and and it's quite well accepted, that uh, chemotherapy to some extent, not a whole lot, but to some extent seeps into the brain. Um, And that can affect a number of these factors, including mood and sometimes uh, pain problems and weight problems as well as sleep problems. So the idea that this isn't your fault, um, and it's not just because people are worried that they have cancer or worried if the treatment is going to work, of course that's so. But on top of that, there are a number of biological things that are happening as well, and we need to take that into account. So um, we really need to acknowledge uh, that these factors happen and uh, they're theoretical um, as well as very practical and then learn what we need to do about it. And there have been only a few studies looking at the role of um, sleep medicines or sedative hypnotics in, um, in cancer. Part of the dilemma is that many uh, of, uh, of us who uh, take chemotherapy get um, – anti nausea medicines or anti emetic medications, that also can affect the sleep uh, pattern. And these medicines, like lorazepam or Ativan, is only one of them that can, can do that. These medicines are very similar to or exactly like some of the medicines that we use for sleep. And if you take them during the day because it's part of your chemotherapy regimen and no one wants you to throw up, they would almost be inhumane to take a number of our chemotherapy regimens without taking anti-medic or anti drugs, will affect your sleep at night. So... Um, here we are faced with uh, you know, sometimes quick fixes because people don't have the expertise that you heard about, and many of the sleep medicines that we all see advertised on TV or we all can get from our primary care doctors are fine for limited amounts of time, but the body can become dependent on them. The commercials um, quibble about exactly which ones or um, how dependent we can get, but for the most part, we can get dependent upon them, which means they work for a period of time, we need more and more, um, and up to a point, because there's a limit on the dose that, that should be given. And then when we stop them, we have rebound insomnia, or we stop sleeping as well as we had before, and then go through more sleeplessness until the medicines are out of our body. So it's complicated by the cancer, complicated by the cancer treatment, and the medicines we use as part of the cancer treatment, whether it be the the chemotherapy drugs or the drugs that we use for uh, nausea and vomiting. So over the years, people have tried to get creative and use medicines that are not habit-forming that can um, cause sedation and use those at night to capitalize on on their side effects of sedation. So one of the popular ones is an over-the-counter antihistamines. Benadryl is often used because it's quite sedating. All the newer ones um, try to be less sedating, but they're less good for sleep. Uh, They're fine for a little while. Um, Men with um, enlarged prostates find that it makes it harder for them to urinate, and that can be a problem. Um, Certain women who have stress incontinence who lose urine when they cough or um, when they laugh often find it helpful. But they're, again, useful for, for brief periods of time only. Um, And many people say that there's a lingering sedative effect during the daytime, and they don't like that. We like to be um, up and bright in the morning and at our best, um, even if we're not morning people. And uh, if there's a medicine that we take for sleep at night that lingers through the morning time, it can work against exactly what our goals of care are. So um, antihistamines have been used, but antidepressants have also been used, partly because some of them are sedating and partly because sometimes it is hard to tell what the contribution is of a true depression or a major depression, what the contribution is to just a sad or depressed mood as part of the daily life of, of having a serious chronic illness and undergoing treatment, and because some of the medicines just in themselves are sedating. But some of the medicines that are sedating will also linger in the daytime. So a medicine like mitosipine or Remeron may be helpful to sleep at night, but winds up for some people actually lingering with fatigue during the day, which, which kind of is backwards of, of the, the goal that we have, which is to get a good night's sleep and then to be wide awake during the daytime. So we have used antidepressants way back into the 70s and the 60s and the early days of amitriptyline or Elevil or tripe, no, the tricyclic antidepressants to some of the newer antidepressants like Paxil or Effexor can certainly be used as sedating medicines and can help with a sort of this backdoor helping your mood, but um, they're not really sleep medicines in and of themselves per se, but can be quite helpful. So um, this is uh, one of those kinds of decisions that needs to be terribly individualized. It's really important to have a prescribing provider, a doctor, or nurse practitioner. Who knows you? Who knows your history? Who knows what other medicines you're taking? It always strikes me as sort of funny when um, the commercials on TV say, tell your doctor what medicine you're taking. Well, I'm sort of old-fashioned. I sort of believe that your doctor or nurse practitioner should know that already. You need not tell them. You need to update them. Um, But... Mixtures are are sometimes difficult, and we have to just work with a provider who knows us and knows our medical history and is careful about, you know, what and how they prescribe. So it is possible to use the medicine safely. It's generally for short amounts of time. It is helpful to use medicines that may have sedation as a side effect, as long as it's individualized and as long as it's not for a very, very long period of time, but through your cancer treatment, maybe a little longer. Um, And the combination of all the things that we've heard, which is some activity, um, some helpful rest, uh, as you heard about before, some good nutrition, which keeps up our energy. And all of this knowledge is probably um, just about the best advice that we can give so that people can finish their treatment and come out of it as whole and then rebuild back their lives to what uh, Dr. Mester always calls the new normal, because it's not the same as it was before, but it's certainly not as bad as people fear when they first have that. Here they have cancer. So we really try to help people get a new balance and use the chemicals and the medications we have in a constructive way and be respectful of the fact that they're not always for everybody all the time um, and and just individualize that treatment as much as possible. So I'm going to stop now uh, and turn it back to Dr. Messner.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Fleischmann. Excellent presentation. Very informative. Lots of good information. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And now we do have time for questions. I want to thank our speakers for really working with us. So we would have all this time for questions. I'm going to ask Mary to bring all of our speakers on board. So all of our speakers Lines will be open, everyone will be on board with us, and then I'm going to ask Mary to explain to you how to queue up for questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Now, there are many of you on the call, so realistically, we won't be able to take everyone's question, but I wanted to say this, I'm going to say this now, and I'll say this again at the end, that um, if we don't get to your question, please call us at Cancer Care at 1-800-813-HOPE at the end of the call and our staff will address your questions. So please don't feel that if you didn't get to ask your question that now what do I do? We will give you options at the end of the call but I want to tell you this up front too. But still ask your questions now. So Mary would you explain to everyone how to queue up
0: for questions? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen if you would like to ask a question please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered, or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, may press the pound key. Our first question comes from Alexandra J. Yes, hi. I would like to ask. Um, I'm a cancer uh, patient, and I have been on chemotherapy and take tamoxifen. And for me, the worst thing seems to be that I will wake up in in the middle of the night, uh, whether it's with hot flashes or not with hot flashes, but just wake up suddenly and be wide awake and not able to get back to sleep. Um, And I was just wondering if you had any ideas for that type of a situation.
1: Excellent. That's an excellent question. I want to thank you for asking that. I'm going to ask um, Dr. Ankoa-Israel to start first with that question, and then perhaps some of our other
4: speakers might like to add to this as well. So this is a very common problem, Um, that you described, this waking up in the middle of the night suddenly and then having a hard time going back to sleep, the first things I recommend are when you first wake up, try not to even open your eyes. You realize you're awake, but if you can just keep your eyes closed, you actually have a much greater chance of drifting right back to sleep. Once you open your eyes, it takes you to full awakening, and then it's much more difficult to fall back to sleep. But if you find that you really still can't go back to sleep, that's when I would suggest that you get out of bed, leave the bedroom, and find something that's relaxing for you. Meditation is good, you can do yoga at that time, but you don't want to do something that's going to be stimulating. You don't want to read a book where you're going to get sucked into trying to see, you know, figure out what happened at the end. And as you do that, that should relax you back, and then you can go back into bed and try to fall back to sleep. It's basically what I described before in our stimulus control therapy. And you'll find that with time, you will learn, your body will relearn to go back to sleep again.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Uh, Excellent recommendations here. Uh, Thank you. Um, Do any other speakers want to add anything to this?
5: Yeah, I'd like to. Um, It's interesting the way you pose the question because it almost seems like that tamoxifen is causing the side effect, but it's really the lowered estrogen in your system, um, which certainly can lead to the hot flashes, and those can wake you up at night. Um, And the lower estrogen is thought to be helpful in preventing a recurrence of um, hormone-dependent cancers like breast cancer. So I I think all the practical things you heard are are really smart. Um, uh, Again, sleeping medicines for brief periods of time can be helpful, but certainly not over five years, and that's the current recommendation for tamoxifen and other hormone-blocking medicines. So using the practical things is better than the sleep medicines. Thank you. Okay, our next question then.
0: Our next question comes from Allison S. I think you just answered my question. I was wondering what is the short amount of time that you can take, uh, for instance, Ambien, generic Ambien, uh, or a uh, non aspirin PM. I didn't realize it might be as long as five years. I thought maybe three months, six months. Could you answer that?
5: Okay, thank you for the question, um, Dr. Fleischman. Could you clarify? Yes, can that? I clarify, please? It's the tamoxifen yes. for five years, not the sleeping medicine. Thank you for for catching something that may not have come through in the way I intended. Um, sleeping medicines—it's it, in general for a few months at a time before the body um, isn't getting effective sleep from it, and that's when you know it's time to pull back and stop or switch to something else. Um, you did mention um, one of the brands that's out there, Ambien. You know there are a variety of, of good medicines, both both brand name as well as generic. The lorazepam that we use in Chemotherapy is also a short-acting medicine of that family that can be helpful, and and many times that's all people can get are the generics because the brand name is not approved by their insurance company. But that should be a few months at the most. It's variable by person, but when it starts to be less effective, you know that your time on it is over and you need to talk with your provider about some substitute. The Tylenol PM is actually Tylenol and Benadryl, so you're really taking an antihistamine but not for an allergy.
1: Thank you. And actually, I have to say it's a wonderful audience, great questions.
0: Our next question, please. Our next question comes from Natalie M. Uh, Yes, I have two questions. One for Dr. McKinley. She had mentioned
4: that a friend recommended something for sleep, and I I didn't uh, hear that clearly enough. And the second was for Dr. Fleischman. He had said something about the medicine. I didn't get whether it's good for incontinence or not and what that was.
3: Okay. Well, thank you for those questions. Dr. McKinley, do you want to take the first part of that? You know, I was talking about earplugs, the soft earplugs that have been very helpful for me to just help me block out any any stray noise that would wake me up at night. That's
1: that's, and the friends were very helpful in that. can actually often offer tips as well. It's
5: excellent.
1: And Dr. Fleischman, do you want to comment on the?
5: Yeah, I'll, I'll we'll comment about the earplugs because those okay. soft silicone earplugs are wonderful, but we had a patient here just a few weeks ago who made like a long channel so they would fit all the way into the ear. And oh. a, a big part of the earplug was retained in the ear and needed one of the ear, nose, and throat surgeons to very carefully take one of those tiny little spoons and scrape it out to follow the directions. Make sure that it's in a ball. Make sure it's on the outside of the uh, ear, and just follow the directions. Because it, it, you know, even good things can backfire. As far as the medicines for that, that can slow down uh, the stress incontinence, the antihistamine medicines like Benadryl. Um, which is in Tylenol PM and some other uh, PM. I think there's an Advil PM as well. Um, If you don't have pain, you don't need the um, ibuprofen or the Tylenol part, but you just need the Benadryl part. And and many women say that when they would normally uh, lose a little urine if they cough or laugh and it's embarrassing with those medications, it actually can cut them. There are other FDA-approved medicines for incontinence. Those are not the main ones, but they, they all work pretty much by the same principle.
4: I would just like to add, this is uh, Dr. Ancolia, so I just want to uh, add, as long as we're talking about these PM drugs, that as we get older, the longer we use these drugs, um, the more side effects that we can have. So it's okay if you're having a little incontinence, but the point is that these drugs also cause urinary retention, which could be a problem. They also can cause confusion and um, symptoms uh, similar to delirium. So we want to be very careful uh, with these drugs and the kinds of side effects we might have. Just because we can get them over the counter does not mean they're always safe. Yes, absolutely necessary for people to know. Excellent.
1: Excellent information. Our next question, please.
0: Our next question comes from Deborah H.,
4: Hi, I run a cancer resource center, and I have a lot of patients that come in wanting information on sleeping and help with sleeping, and I haven't been able to find a source that addresses that topic. Are any of you aware of, like Cancer Care has a lot of wonderful literature that, that would specifically address sleep issues for written for the patient? That's an excellent question.
1: I'm going to ask Dr. Ancoli Israel to address it. I think you, you probably can talk about some material yeah. that you so, actually have.
4: Uh, um, I'm not sure if you meant uh, addressing it for patients with cancer specifically or in general, but um, the National Sleep Foundation has a website that has a lot of excellent information on things one can do for sleep. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine also does. Um, but I know even specifically for cancer, there, uh, there's an um, article, in fact, that we just wrote for um, coping the, the coping, Coping, which is an article about coping with cancer. So I think if you look on the Internet, you will actually find quite a bit of information, things similar to what we've been talking about, as well as other suggestions for sleep. And, you know, you raise an excellent
1: point. Um, I would say the National Cancer Institute probably has lots of information um, in terms of of this topic, um, I would say that cancer care. We do have a number of different fact sheets. We have not developed one on sleep. is clearly something we have to do. Um, we definitely have our work cut out for us because I think a lot of the important tips that were mentioned today. Dr. Anca Israel's article in Kobe magazine, which is very accessible to everybody on the call, many of your cancer centers have that magazine. It's a nice a summary of many of the points that were covered today. Dr. Alfano, do you have any other thoughts of um, just um, through NCI to get information about the and the sleeping tips and things.
2: You know, I would point you to the same um, websites that Dr. Nkoli-Israel pointed out. I think those are the best uh, references for everybody in the call. And And I was going to
5: suggest the National Cancer Institute website. Under Cancer Topics, there's a lovely section on sleep and cancer.
2: No, it's true. You can go there too. Obviously, uh, <laughs> I want to promote my own website, but <laughs> you're
5: allowed. It's, good. it's
1: a good site. <laughs> it's, it's actually a site that we all, most of us, go to, uh, and and it is, but uh, it is definitely something that um, you're going to be hearing more about, and there will be more tips and fact sheets about this because it's clearly an area that um, many of the. Uh, it's just important to have almost these things kind of n- near you, so that's very important. So thank you for the questions. Our next question, please. Our next question
0: comes
1: from Helen Marie H. Hello. Um, I am currently on a chemotherapy regimen of Taxotere and Herceptin, and the day before, the day of, and the day after chemotherapy, I am required to um, uh, take steroids, which would just wreck my sleep. I'm just like total insomniac here. Um, So any advice you could give me on dealing with that would be? Helpful. Thank you. Uh, excellent. Um, and um, uh, Dr. Fleischman, could you address that?
5: Yes, that's a very common thing we hear from everybody. The dexamethasone or the prednisone, particularly the dexamethasone, used before, during, and after. The taxanes are um, really wreak havoc with sleep. That's expected. Um, it's very rare individual I've seen take those medicines that that doesn't happen. And working with your provider about using something with it, if it's safe for you, a short-acting sleeping medicine for a few days, uh, you know, after or, or during and after, really is, is a smart thing to do. Or using some of, some other medicines that are sedating also can be helpful. There's very little in that whole list of medicines that we spoke about before that is going to be hazardous when using it over a short period of time. So um, I often have people use it for the, the day that they take their, their steroids, the day after, and maybe two or three days afterwards. And then the chemotherapy generally makes them tired. And then just when you feel well, fine again, then it's time for your next dose. So that's just a, a cycle that, that we normally go through with chemotherapy.
1: So it's really important for people to realize. We're really talking about a very short period of usage around an acute time.
4: That's really um... Very important for everybody to know that. I'd like to add, too, that um, with many of the newer sleeping pills that are on the market, they really don't have to be taken every night in a row. So just to reinforce what Dr. Fleshman said, you can take it for one or two nights, stop, and then take it again a few nights later. Uh, the older drugs you really have to take every night, and you're into problems if you stopped. But with the newer drugs, it's okay to do that. And if you have to use it for a longer time period, some of these drugs um, can be quite safe until you can start integrating the behavioral treatments that, you, that, that will then help you even longer term.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Our next question. Thanks. Our next question comes from Michelle G. Hi. <coughs>
4: Excuse me. Um, I wanted to uh, ask the speakers to address an issue that I'm sure a lot of us aging patients feel Um, you wake up in the middle of the night because you have to go to the bathroom, so you're automatically out of bed. Um, And I don't want to get up. I try to get back in bed and go back to sleep right away, but that doesn't always work. Um, Do you still recommend, in those circumstances,
2: getting out of bed and staying out of bed for a while?
1: And what time do you get out of bed? What time are you talking about?
2: Uh, Anytime between 3 and 5.
1: Okay. All right. Excellent question. Thank you. I think that's probably on everyone's mind. Dr. Israel, do you want to address that? Yes, I do.
4: Thank you. So um, the first thing you have to understand is often you wake up not because you need to go to the bathroom. You wake up for some other reason, and then because you're awake, you think, oh, there's some pressure. I must need to go to the bathroom. So, again, if when you first wake up, First of all, don't look at the clock. The fact that you said you knew was between 3 and 5 means you're looking at the clock. So get rid of that clock. Try to not even open your eyes, and if you, you might fall right back to sleep and not even need to get up to go to the bathroom. But if you find you do need to get up, some of the keys there are, first of all, not turning on the lights. Remember we said we need darkness at night. If you're afraid of falling, then you might use a night light, but, um, but don't turn on overhead lights. Try to just quietly go, do your business, and come right back to bed. And only if after you get back into bed, if in about 20 minutes, as we said again, about because you're not looking at the clock, but if you, if you start after a while feeling tense about not being able to get back to sleep, then get out of bed. But you do want to get back into bed at first and at least give yourself a chance to fall back to sleep.
5: Excellent.
1: Anyone else want to add to that, Dr. Fleischman, or...?
5: I'd just like to maybe have one of the other speakers talk a little bit about age-related sleep problems because we don't sleep the same way um, as we get older that we did when we were younger. And and people are aging as they're having cancer and and surviving their cancer.
4: I'm happy to address that. Um, There is this myth out there that as we get older, we need less sleep. And the truth is we need the same amount of sleep as we needed when we were younger. The problem is we've often lost the ability to get sleep that we need, and much of that is because of all the different medical problems that we have, all the different medications that we're taking for those medical problems, all of which can affect sleep, but the other aspect of sleep as we get older is that our biological clock changes, so you've heard about being an owl or being a lark, teenagers are often owls, you know, how they didn't want, don't want to go to bed till 1 in the morning and then sleep until noon, and that's part of their biological clock. But as we get older, our clock does the opposite thing. We get sleepy earlier in the evening and wake up earlier in the morning. So if we went to bed at 7 or 8, we might fall asleep and sleep for our 8 hours. But if you do the math, that means you're waking up at 3, 4, 5 in the morning. That's really not the middle of the night, even though it seems that way. For your biological clock when you're older, that's morning. And so the problem is, We try to stay up till maybe 10 or 11, but we're still waking up at 3, 4 in the morning, and now we're not in bed long enough to get the sleep that we need. The best way to deal with that is with more bright light exposure. For our older adults, what we want to do is have as much light exposure as we can very late in the afternoon or the early evening. So this time of year, the sun is out late. Go out for a walk in the evening while the sun is still out. Sit in your backyard and get that sunlight exposure. And that will help you stay alert later and sleep later into the morning, the very typical pattern of aging. Thank you. Our next
0: question. Our next question comes
4: from Stephanie Kaye. Uh, yes, hi everybody. Thank you so much for this seminar. It's been wonderful. Um, I've been on the lorazepam, the ativan, 0.25 milligrams since March 2007, uh, for my exactly for the chemotherapy with the taxil and the herceptin. I'm using it not just for sleeping. I am using it for pain from the peripheral neuropathy and lymphedema. So I'm wondering, since it's a small dose, I mean, is it can be used for both, not just for sleep, but for both? I also take. Um, I believe, ibuprofen, liquid, like one at night, not the PM. For, again, for this terrible pain from the lymphedema and from the neuropathy, peripheral neuropathy. Excellent question. Dr. Fleischman, can
5: you address that? Oh, good question. Well, um, the Ativan or lorazepam is a benzodiazepine, which certainly can be used as a fourth or fifth choice for uh, neuropathic pain or pain problems in general. Again, uh, it's very hard to give specific um, direction, but in, in, you can certainly talk to your providers about what other types of medicines there are, particularly um, either uh, drugs that are, have been used in peripheral neuropathy or neuropathic pain such as some of the antidepressant medicines, off-label use, not because you're depressed, some of the seizure medicines, not because you have seizures, but because they work off-label use. Um, There are a variety of other things to do. The dose is very small, at 0.25 milligrams. That's very true. Um, But there are other better things out there for peripheral neuropathy, so this is a, a good conversation with you and your provider.
1: Thank you. Well, I want to thank our speakers. They've actually just been remarkable. I want to, just an, an amazing uh, group of speakers and we're definitely going to have them back again, that's for sure. And an, it's such an important topic, I must say. And I want to thank all of you who've asked such wonderful questions. Now, this is a one-hour education program and that we recognize that, of course, that you have many needs that go far beyond the scope of one hour. And so, with that in mind, I do want, and also, you may have had other questions you wanted to ask that you didn't get a chance to ask. So, I, I don't want you to feel that because the education program is ending soon, that our services to you, those continue endlessly. And and you have all the different organizations that have worked together to make this program possible. You have all their resource information. We are here for you, um, and we are here for you um, to actually go ahead and call us. Um, I am going to... I certainly recommend that you call Cancer Care, 1-800-813-HOPE. Call our staff. We'll take your questions. We'll help you with them. I also do want to remind you about the National Cancer Institute. It has a wonderful toll-free number, 1-800, the number for cancer. It's in your materials. Um, And they have wonderful materials as well on their website, uh, www.cancer.gov. Um, All of the organizations in today's program have materials and information for you. Most importantly, I don't want anyone to leave this program feeling like you're alone, like there is no other help for you. Um, I want you to now feel that you're part of a community of support, and we are here to help you. Um, And you have all these organizations to call, and our services are all free. Now, I also remind you that this is part one of a four-part series. So our next program, and I hope you all sign up for that one too, and many of you have already, is on May 18th, Tuesday, and it's on communicating with your healthcare team after treatment, making the most of your visit. And actually many of your questions today did have to do with the communication with your team. So join us um, for our next program, and we look forward to your joining us, and you have, um, uh, you know, uh, you're a wonderful group, And we look forward to talking with you and hearing more from you. So I want to thank you all for participating today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may disconnect, and have a wonderful day.